an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. Americans across the country are grieving this Sunday, grieving for the five Dallas police officers shot and killed by an African-American man Thursday night, and for two African-American men shot and killed by police officers earlier in the week. It's been a wrenching week in black and white for our country. We've asked our Martha Teichner to examine its implications in our Sunday morning cover story. Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Philandro Castile in suburban St. Paul, black men shot and killed by police. Five police officers in Dallas shot and killed by a black man. All these deaths linked forever. History will remember these three dark days in July, unquestionably. And there still is a remaining question of where this is going and what's going to happen. The unsettled matter of policing and race ahead this Sunday morning. And then it's on to the growing number of Americans feasting on homegrown food, or at least feasting on food that was harvested right next door. With Mark Strassman, we'll peruse the menu. Outside Atlanta, there's a neighborhood fit for a foodie, where the distance from farm to table is just 50 feet. How important is the farm to this community? Oh, I think it's vital. It's the centerpiece of the community. A lot of people are saying that farms are the, are the new golf course. It's a beautiful day in the agri-hood, ahead on Sunday morning. Elton John is a music legend many times over, thanks in large part to his steady rock of a collaborator. Sir Elton talks about that and more with our Anthony Mason. Sir Elton John has been writing hit songs with lyricist Bernie Taupin for nearly 50 years now. We've never, and this is on my children's life, ever had an argument. Ever. That, that's really ever. hard. Why? There's no point. But the singer says he can finally see the end of the road. Sir Elton John, later on Sunday morning. The Science Guy was a children's TV star not so long ago. More recently, he's been focusing his persuasive powers on adults, as Rita Braver will show us. Bill Nye, the Science Guy. He introduced a generation to the wonders of science. Now that's a chemical reaction. And now he's still speaking out on issues like global warming. Climate change is real. 
So how does he get away from it all? It's the joy of movement. And then you get to hold the woman, which is priceless. Later on Sunday morning, Bill Nye, the science and dancing guy. Tracy Smith looks back on the life of Robin Williams in pictures. David Turacamo shares some short stories on demand. Michelle Miller offers us a history of the blues from the just-opened National Blues Museum. Ahead, good farmers make good neighbors. People love the idea of sitting on their back porch and watching the farmers grow the food. It could have been you or you or you. But first, the week <laughs> in black and white and blue. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. We look back this morning on a week in black and white, a week like no other in recent times. With the wounds still fresh in our minds, we wonder how it all could have happened, and we wonder what we can do to keep it from happening again. Our cover story now is reported by Martha Teichner. No matter how horrible, horrible the Dallas killings were, were they somehow inevitable? Micah Xavier Johnson may have turned out to be the same kind of troubled mass shooter we've seen so many times before. But what he did with deadly aim was shove the issue of policing and race into all of our faces again. What I think this shows is that in a system, a system that doesn't value black life, it only further imperils blue life. Washington Post reporter Wesley Lowry is the author of a soon-to-be-released history of the Black Lives Matter movement. I was not surprised by Dallas. Um, you had a nation that for two years has almost nonstop been grappling with this idea of policing and what acceptable policing, what acceptable police use of force looks like. And we'd had these two incidents, first in Baton Rouge and then in Falcon Heights, Minnesota, one after the other that were so traumatizing. And you saw this anger and you saw this pain. By now, the pictures are almost painfully familiar. Police use of force looked like this last Tuesday in Baton Rouge, when cell phone video of Alton Sterling being shot to death went viral. The officers had been told he had a gun. Then on Wednesday, again, incredibly, in a suburb of St. Paul. Oh, not to reach for it! I told him to get his hand off me! Diamond Reynolds began live streaming on Facebook just after an officer shot her boyfriend, Philando Castile, and he lay dying. Castile had said he had a gun. He's licensed, he's carried to he's licensed to carry. He was trying to get out his ID and his wallet out his um pocket. Police argue that the videos we see often show only part of the story. But these two, back to back, were still damning. For generations, 
black Americans have been talking about these interactions. They've been saying, the police have beat us up, they've killed us, they've harassed us. And for generations, white America has said, you're making it up, we believe the police. And what has changed has been videotape. And then the story changed. On Thursday, there were demonstrations throughout the United States. Enough is enough! Including the one in Dallas. And we gotta come together! As protests go, it was a model of peaceful police community goodwill. Until the moment when Micah Xavier Johnson opened fire. Five officers were killed and seven more wounded, protecting the demonstrators as they ran away. This was viral video of a very different kind. We saw good cops, not what looked like bad cops. The theater of public anguish shifted to another stage. We're hurting. We are heartbroken. Dallas Police Chief David Brown on Friday morning. We don't feel much support most days. Let's not make today most days. The irony is that Dallas cops were targeted. Community policing is the rule in Dallas. Officer-involved shootings are down. Crime is, too. Just a month ago, University of South Florida criminology professor Lori Friedel was brought in to teach impartial policing, as we watched her do in Philadelphia last summer. There are some very potent implications of the science of bias for training officers for those split-second decisions when they need to decide whether or not to use force or not. Dallas is one of dozens of police forces since 2014 engaged in a massive soul-searching. It began with Ferguson, Missouri, after the shooting of Michael Brown, with images of cops looking and acting like an occupying army, and the riots that followed. Good morning, everybody. Chuck Wexler is executive director of the Police Executive Research Forum, a Washington-based police think tank dedicated to progressive policing. I think the past two years have been an eye-opener because it hasn't been simply one city. It hasn't been Ferguson. Uh, it has been a series of cities in which you look at the video and a lot of the police chiefs that I know, um, they've asked themselves, I think that could have been handled better. Wexler worries that now there will be a Dallas effect. It will be very hard on Monday for police chiefs to push their officers back, to engage with the community. It will be twice as hard because of what happened in Dallas. Now some context. The number of police officers killed in the line of duty has actually dropped by more than two-thirds since the 1970s to under 50. Dallas puts the number at 25 so far this year. By comparison, police shot and killed close to 1,000 people last year, and already more than 500 this year, nearly 40% of them black or Hispanic. It could have been you or you or you. But at the end of a bloody week, 
Both black lives and blue lives mattered to Americans anxious about what happens next. As tough, as hard, as depressing as the loss of life was this week, we've got a foundation to build on. President Obama tried to reassure us. And we have to make sure that uh, all of us step back, do some reflection, and make sure that the rhetoric uh, that we engage in uh, is constructive. But just last night in St. Paul, one of the cities where this all began, the only rhetoric was the language of the streets. The only reflection was the light from fireworks hurled at the cops. The matter of policing and race, no closer to resolution. And now, a page from our Sunday morning almanac. July 10th, 1856, 160 years ago today. The day Nikola Tesla was born to a Serbian family in southeastern Europe. A trained scientist and budding electrical engineer, Tesla moved to the United States in 1884. He went to work for Thomas Edison, but soon split with him over Edison's support for direct current, DC electric power. Tesla believed that alternating current was more efficient switched sides to work with Edison's arch-rival, George Westinghouse. Yes, that Westinghouse. Tesla also made breakthroughs in radio, building a landmark 187-foot-tall radio transmitter on New York's Long Island. Along the way, he also invented the Tesla coil, a spectacular spark machine that to this day is a surefire science museum crowd pleaser. Tesla once predicted that humans would telephone the stars even graced the cover of Time magazine in 1931. A better scientist than money manager, he died virtually penniless at a New York City hotel room in 1943 at the age of 86. He is remembered today on Serbian money at the Nikola Tesla corner in New York City and by the Tesla electric automobile, which uses an induction motor of Tesla's own 1882 design, an AC motor, needless to say. Coming up, the St. Louis Blues. Now over. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. A museum opening has some folks in St. Louis singing the blues. But as Michelle Miller assures us, they couldn't be happier about it. If every city has a soundtrack, then St. Louis, Missouri's might just be the blues. Seven nights a week, city establishments hum with live music. Even the hockey team sings in tune aptly named the Blues. But now the city has another reason to toot its horn. St. Louis is home to the brand new National Blues Museum. From the tender laments of Bessie Smith Everybody wants to, know. to the swing of B.B. King and electricity of Muddy Waters. 
just has a way of expressing what words can't. Is it hard to define blues? It is hard to define blues. It's, uh, in a way, it's easy, and in a way, it's, it's, it's really hard. So there's a great quote in the Museum of Jimi Hendrix's, the blues is easy to play, but it's hard to feel. Rob Incott is the chairman of the National Blues Museum. The space traces the history of the blues and its influence on R&B, rock and roll, and funk, all genres born from those stirring, soulful sounds. It's not a large museum, and it's not artifact-intensive. As you're going through, you're learning about the history in a chronological sense. We wanted to tell that entire story. It's a story that dates back to the 1800s. Blues originated on southern plantations, songs about pain and adversity sung by slaves toiling in the fields. Eventually, as freed slaves migrated north, they brought that music with them. That very migration is the centerpiece of this museum. And how crucial was that migration to the evolution of blues? Well, it was cr critical because at every stop along the way, musicians would, would see who was playing there, would stay for a little while, they might make a permanent home there, and in each location they would put their individual stamp on the blues, Memphis-style blues, St. Louis-style blues, Kansas City, Chicago, and Detroit. St. Louis blues, for example, is more piano-based than other styles. It's also known for inspiring the St. Louis blues, a tune so popular it's been referred to as the jazz man's Hamlet. It's a history proudly displayed at the new museum in a city eager to prove that it still knows how to sing the blues. I always say that we never make the claim that we are the only place for a blues museum or the, the best place for a blues museum, but we are the place that we just decided to do it. But there are roots here. There are roots here, yes. But the blues sort of belongs to, you know, the world. Still to come, Bill Nye, the science guy. Absolutely, there is life elsewhere, and almost certainly intelligent life. It has to be. I'd rather stay here uh, than in a hotel. And we lived at my parents' apartment in North London. At home with music legend. Sir Elton John. God, it's hot in here. As that classic scene from the 1993 movie Mrs. Doubtfire made clear, Robin Williams was full of life. Now, almost two years after his death, we have a chance to see Williams as we've never seen him before. Tracy Smith has his life in pictures. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Robin Williams! 
The images of his performance on stage are almost like those of a hummingbird captured in flight. Mania and mayhem, frozen in time. In 1986, Robin Williams was a man who, it seemed, could do everything but stop. Arthur Grace was a photographer assigned to cover him for Newsweek magazine. And not long after Grace's cover shot hit the newsstands, Robin Williams asked him to stick around and basically help document his life. We just hit it off. We got along well together and respected each other. If you could boil it down, what do you think it was that made the two of you click? We're both children. <laughs> he never once said to me, don't shoot this, or you can't photograph that, or you've done enough. Never once, never not go one, away. Never one time, and as, lo as long as I knew him, did that ever happen. So for close to 30 years, Grace shot everything, in every waking and non-waking hour, in places far from public view. He captured the calm before the storm. Grace says that in the moments before a stand-up performance, Robin Williams would drift into what seemed like another world. Before he went on stage, he got very quiet, almost sleepy. They call it a zen-like state. He just almost fell asleep. He was just looking down, his arms down, just really quiet, looking down, his eyes closed. And I'm going, should I wake him up? I mean, should I poke him or something? And all of a sudden, you'd hear the announcer, come on, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Robin Williams. And as soon as he said Williams, his eyes came open and he was off like a shot. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Metropolitan Opera House in New York City, Mr. Robin Williams. He ran on the stage like shot out of a cannon, but he went from zero to 60, zero to 100, as soon as they mentioned his name. It was, I never seen anything like it. I would like to thank Imelda Marcos for her earrings. <laughs> thank you, Imelda, thank you. And after 90 minutes of superhuman performance, Williams's assistant would meet him backstage with a plastic bag to collect his sweat-drenched shirt. Robin Williams wasn't Arthur Grace's first celebrity assignment or his most famous. As a press photographer, Grace spent years covering presidents at the White House and on the road. He got politicians running for office and journalists running to meet deadlines, like our CBS colleague Leslie Stahl in 1980. There was John Wayne in a tank, Jacqueline Onassis in a pensive mood. But to him, none was more fascinating than Robin Williams, a stand-up comedian who could be an elderly woman in 1993's Mrs. Doubtfire. Hello! Or a gay nightclub owner in 1996's The Birdcage. You do fussy, fussy, fussy. You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Or Twyla, Twyla. Or Matt Damon's therapist in Goodwill Hunting. And you don't regret meeting your wife? Why? Because the pain I feel now? Oh, I got regrets, Will, but I don't regret a single day I spent with her. I'd never seen Robin so focused on a movie. In 1997, Grace was in Boston shooting still photos that were used to promote the movie. He had to use Boston accent. Uh, that was part of it. And so he was into it, totally into it. He was studying with his uh, dialect coach in his hotel room all weekend. And he delivered one of the great monologues, two pages of script on film that's still remembered. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. Known someone that could level you with her eyes. 
feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you. For this role, Robin Williams got his fourth Oscar nomination and his first win. On Oscar night, Arthur Grace hovered nearby, snapping everything with a small pocket camera. What was Robin like on Oscar night? Otherworldly almost. He, he, I was watching in real time somebody live out a dream. The party ended early the next morning at Williams's hotel suite. And I noticed the Oscar was still on the little table uh, next to a Junior's deli bag that was half open. So that was the last picture I shot and let myself out. Now it was Oscar night. How many pictures do you think you took in total of Robin Williams? Uh, honestly, I have no idea, but it has to be in the thousands, really. Grace, who now lives on his boat in Los Angeles, says he imagined he and Robin would go through all the pictures together as old men. But it was not to be. When was the last time you spoke to him? I saw him in late 2013, about six months before he died. And he um, was just seemed to be quieter, seemed to be more, didn't have the same energy that I remember. But you didn't get the sense that there was anything wrong. Wrong with him, no. No, no, no. No, not at all. We begin tonight with breaking news in the West, the sudden death of Robin Williams. In the days after Williams' suicide at 63, Arthur Grace was swamped with photo requests, but he ignored them all. Could you look at the photos? No. No, I didn't do anything. Not then and there, no. Why not? It's too hard. It's too hard. Still. Still? Sure. Now, as a tribute, he's compiled his favorites into a book. So you talked about... Oscar night, but when do you think Robin Williams was happiest? He was happiest around his kids, really, family life. Arthur Grace captured the Robin Williams that the rest of the world rarely saw, intimate moments with his children while they were young, like bath time in 1995, a bedtime story with daughter Zelda, and a quiet cuddle with his sleepy son Cody at the end of the day. How will you remember him? Oh, the most interesting guy I ever met in my life, by far. We in, uh, shared some incredible times together. And uh, they're not going to be repeated with anybody else. <laughs> of all the photos he took, this one, he says, is his favorite. Robin Williams at the end of a show in 1986. Exhausted, exuberant, and victorious. The long and the short of it. Just ahead. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Many of us complain that we just don't have the time to read anymore. But not the people our man in Paris has been talking with. Here's David Turcamo. In the city of Grenoble in southern France, at the tourist information office, well, you see this woman in the red hat waiting her turn? If she'd just turn around, she'd notice that funny-looking gizmo there. It can print out a story written for somebody just like her, somebody killing time waiting. It's very, very short stories. One minute, three minutes, five minutes. You see, you push a button according to how long you want to spend reading, and voila, a vending machine for literature. And it's free. 
We started this by saying, if we want to be a publisher, how would we do it today? It's a shame to not know the pleasure to read. Christophe Sebiud and Kentan Pleple are two of the architects of the publishing house of Short Edition. We have a website, shortedition.com, where authors can submit stories. The website went up five years ago, and according to Sylvia Tempesta, within a week people were finding them. One week. Mm. And you had how many? Uh... Just one, and we said, oh, wow, we have one writers, <laughs> two writers. <laughs> five years later, they have roughly 10,000 authors and a community of 150,000 regular readers. What is different between us and another traditional publisher uh-huh. is that we don't choose what we're going to publish. The community picks, uh-huh. and the community is voting for the best one. And the best are collected and published in book form and on the machine. And even the machine selects randomly from about 600 stories in its memory. And the authors? The authors can be anyone, it's not only... Uh, oops, sorry. What he was about to say is that it's not just about people who want to be best-selling authors. In fact, a lot of them submit anonymously. But what almost everybody wants is some kind of feedback on their work. They'd rather have a few people that read the stories mm-hmm. and then give some feedback and say, it's cool, I liked it, or you could have written like that, or stuff like that, rather than hundreds of anonymous people that just read and don't comment. And the stories, well... Je me regardais dans la glace, mes ciseaux à la main, et ma frange trop courte. Je suis nul. This one could be considered a bad hair day that went really wrong. And then at the end she says, I have my... Uh, Isabel Pleple, one of the principals, says they got the idea one day standing in front of a vending machine. Et on s'est dit, les histoires courtes, c'est très pratique. Il devrait même y en avoir ici dans la machine. Once they had a prototype, they took it to the mayor of Grenoble, Eric Piole, who installed the first one in City Hall. When you take some uh, art and you place it in an area where you don't expect it, you can create something. He was instrumental in underwriting the first eight machines, now placed around the city in municipal buildings. They got so much press that orders have been coming in from around the world. New Zealand, Australia, Indonesia, India. And from the original eight machines, and they've uh, just ordered... 45. 45. Yes, 45. And we plan to have hundreds of them. I'm even interested to remind you to have another story for after. Thank you. Next, welcome to the Agrohood. I would say that probably 80% of the food that we eat comes from within a five-mile radius of this house. Produce that is homegrown is more than just a dining choice. In some parts of the country, it's a real estate choice as well, as Mark Strassman now shows us. All you foodies take a closer look. This tree-lined suburban street might lead to heaven on earth. I would say that Probably 80% of the food that we eat comes from within a five-mile radius of this house. These peppers. These peppers, yeah. This they come pepper. from? That comes from 50 feet away. Clay Johnson and Rosalind Lemieux moved their family here from Washington, D.C. Yes. two years ago. Their five-bedroom, five-bathroom home sits 40 minutes south of downtown Atlanta. They bought here for the close-knit neighborhood 
and this organic farm right beyond their backyard. We had a friend from New York City come down here and ask us if it was decorative. Um, <laughs> Farm? <laughs> I wasn't even say like, did, did they put those hay bales out there for, is that an art installation? <laughs> um, <laughs> Green Acres is the place to be. But this isn't Green Acres. Oliver and Lisa Douglas were city folk trying their hand at farming. Johnson and Lemieux are technology consultants living in a subdivision called Serenby. 250 homes and growing. The big draw here is not swim tennis or golf, but a real working farm. To be clear, we're not roughing it. Like that farm is cared for by professional farmers. We buy the food. We are lucky to be so close to it, to be able to benefit, but we're not having to go out there and, you know, hoe the farm. People love the idea of sitting on their back porch and watching the farmers grow the food. Steve Nigren is Serenby's developer. But where did you get the idea of putting a farm, a working farm in the center? Well, I grew up uh, on a farm. Uh, my family is generational farmers from uh, Colorado. Nigren had opened and owned more than 30 restaurants when he bought 60 acres of farmland in 1994. And gradually, that family farm became Serenby. He was nervous about urban sprawl and decided to develop a community his way. Today, Serenby has 1,000 acres. Its clusters of homes are surrounded by walking trails and horse stables. But at the center of it all, 25 acres set aside for agriculture. The first 20 lots that I priced were sold in 48 hours. And the next group were sold in about uh, six weeks. So I realized that there was actually the market demand for what we were talking about. As an approach, Serenby grew from the same farm-to-table movement that has changed restaurant menus and brought farmers' markets to more and more neighborhoods. This community planted itself at the forefront of the latest development trend, the agrihood. It's really about uh, using farms and agriculture as an amenity. Ed McMahon is a researcher at the Urban Land Institute in Washington, D.C. When I first started following this, you could count the number of developments like this on both hands. Uh, today, there are literally hundreds of them, and, they're, and I hear about a new one virtually every week. Putting a farm in the middle of development is relatively low cost, and it's something that seems to uh, resonate with lots of people. So I think we're going to see a lot more of these kind of projects going forward. Agrihoods are popping up like peppers coast to coast. The cannery near Sacramento has a seven-and-a-half-acre farm. Prairie Crossing outside Chicago is anchored by a hundred-acre farm. And just outside Washington, D.C., you'll find Willowsford, with its 300 acres set aside for fruits and vegetables, chickens and goats. But agrihoods are often luxury living. The average home at Serenby costs about $700,000, five times more than other homes in the area. Serenby recently broke ground on 50 new homes, and when complete, is expected to have 1,200 residents. People that are moving here, they, they want to be near the farm. They want to overlook it. 29-year-old Ashley Rogers is Serenby's farm manager. I know most of the folks in the community, and they can come up to me one day and say, oh man, I made that sweet potato last night. And that warms my heart more than like anything. <laughs> Rogers grew up in suburban Detroit. 
She feels a special connection here. Her hands in the soil, her heart in the community. I love what I do. <laughs> I think about Charles that lives right there all the time. And just hearing him say, hey, Ashley, do you know, like knowing that he cares about what I'm doing and I can affect him and he can come after school and pick radishes with us, you know, and his parents can say, oh, thank you. Like, you make such an impact on him. Like, where else can I do that? How important is the farm to this community? Oh, I think it's vital. It's the centerpiece of the community. You know, we'll spend two to three hours at the farmer's market on Saturday not just buying vegetables, I mean, that takes 15 minutes, but checking in with neighbors, seeing how everybody's doing. If you replace that farm with a golf course, right? Like, we wouldn't, we wouldn't live here. Can this model be duplicated, replicated in other places? Gosh, I would hope so. I really would hope so. Because this, the subdivisions, you know, that I grew up in, I hope that that's an end of an era and we can have this community, not a subdivision. Yearnings fade, the longings die. You learn to bid them all goodbye. And oh, the peace, the blessed peace, at last you come to know. The roads you never take go through rocky ground, don't they? The choices that you make aren't all that grim. The world you never see still will be around, won't they? The Ben I'll never be, who remembers Still to come? Music legend Sir Elton John. And later, you're the best thing I've ever seen. A matter of appearance. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. I remember when I was young. Mind the Muppets. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. That's music legend Sir Elton John singing Crocodile Rock carpool karaoke style with CBS Late Late Show host James Corden. Elton John has so many familiar hits, it can be a bit of a burden, as he tells our Anthony Mason. For nearly half a century, he's been one of music's most flamboyant performers. But Sir Elton John was uneasy when he took the stage at the Wiltern Theater in Los Angeles earlier this year. The audience wouldn't know it, but I was so nervous. He has more than 50 top 40 hits, but this night, Sir Elton was also debuting some new songs. And you can't really play more than three or four because the audience really doesn't want to know. Um, what is that feeling like that you're Horrible. Up it is. <laughs> it's like, oh, I've written this song and I really like it and you're going to the toilet. Um, 
living in your eyes. On Wonderful Crazy Nights, Sir Elton's 33rd studio album, the singer says he wanted to celebrate his wonderful life. I lose myself in you, blue, wonderful, blue, wonderful. You wanted a certain tone on this record. I wanted a joyous tone. I wanted an Elton John 70s record that sounded if it was made now. His lyricist for this record is the same songwriting partner he's had for 49 years now. He's probably more important than me when it comes to writing the songs because he has to write the words before I write the music. So can I have a, a, a warm hand, please, for Bernie Taupin? They met before Elton was Elton, when young Reginald Dwight answered this ad seeking songwriters. And when I look back on my little shy self, I can't believe I actually had the balls to do it, but I did. <laughs> the record label paired him with Taupin. They clicked immediately. If I hadn't have made that decision of going, I would, my life would have been completely different. You ended up basically bunking together. We lived at my parents' apartment in North London. Um, he became the brother I never had. Yeah. Um, I love Bernie, not in a carnal way, but in the most emotional, beautiful way. Apart from a short separation in the late 70s, they've worked together ever since, becoming one of the most successful songwriting teams in history. When Bernie brings you a lyric, do you ask him to explain it? No, never. So you don't know what Levon is about? Uh, no, but I mean, I've got my own idea, and, I, and every time I sing it, I have this vision going on in my mind. But that's the magic of those lyrics, because every time you sing it, you think about something different. Right. And even in your song, I mean, I never get fed up with it. It's the most beautiful love song. This one's for you. Now I sing it, I'm thinking about David, or I'm thinking about my boys. And you can tell everybody this is your song. It's so hard for songwriting teams to stay together. It's, they're so acrimonious sometimes. The thing with him and I is that we dropped our egos. You and know, how, did you, how did you do that? Why did you do that? Because it was necessary. We've never, and this is on my children's life, ever had an argument. Ever. That, that's really ever. hard. Why? There's no point. Um, yeah. He's had harsh words with me when I haven't been behaving myself. Yeah. He's told me the truth, yeah. but it's never been an argument. Elton went through an especially dark period in the 80s when he battled drugs and depression. When you were dealing with your drug problem, how did you keep going? I did, and that's what kept me alive. If I'd have stayed at home and just shut my curtains um, and not appeared for six months, I wouldn't have appeared, period, because I would have killed myself. I can't Music has been my friend since I was two or three years old. Yeah. When my parents were getting divorced, it was my sanctuary in my bedroom listening to the radio, playing records. The fact is, music kept me alive. It saved my life. Mm -hmm. Feels like you... You traded it in a way for an addiction to performing. <laughs> well, the addiction to the performing was bigger than the addiction to drugs. Thank God. You described yourself once as the, um, as the best-known homosexual in the world. Uh, yeah, and I think probably the acceptable face of homosexuality, which I've realized in my later years, can open a few doors. You know, uh, so that a responsibility comes with that, as far as you're concerned. A responsibility comes with it. And if I a responsibility to engage world leaders, like Russia's president, 
who has spoken out against homosexuality. And so um, I had a call from President Putin and I'm going to go and meet him sometime this year and I'm not expecting to change the scenario straight away. Have you thought about what you're going to say? No. Um, I'm not going to go and say, you have to do this, you have to do that, because he's going to tell me, no, that's not the way to approach it. No, I have no expectations, but if I can change things in five years, then it's all well and good. It may take 50, it may take five minutes, who knows? But unless you try... The singer is a citizen of the world now, with houses in England, France, Atlanta, and here in Beverly Hills. So how much time do you actually spend out here? Quite a bit. Because When he's playing Vegas, it's an oasis for his son Zachary, now five, and Elijah, who is three. It's great. The boys love it here. Yeah. It's, you know, they have a yard to plan. They, they love the weather. Can you keep up with them? Oh, yeah. I, I just love them. I mean, ten years ago, if you just said I'd be sitting in this house um, with two children, um, I'm married to my husband... No, I would have said you'd have put acid in my drink. And boy, has it been the best decision I've ever made in my whole life. Right. Are you surprised at how you've been as a father? Yeah, I'm absolutely totally. I thought I would find it irritating, you know, because I'm, I'm a neat freak. I'm a, you know, I like things to be, you know, I like objects, so I like them to be in certain positions. The boys are brilliant. And fatherhood has changed the way Elton John sees his future. They just put everything in perspective. So... I mean, it's led to a, me looking at what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. I'm cutting down on shows. Everything is arranged around their school holidays now. Um, I will still be working, but I will be cutting down. And then to, in the end, I will stop. You will stop? Yeah. I want to see them grow up. I have a, such a great life. After four decades on tour, up ahead, Sir Elton can see the end of the road. Coming up, face facts. Is it time for Hollywood to face up to a divisive issue? Our critic David Edelstein thinks so. There was a recent commentary in the showbiz paper Variety that got a bit of attention. Dear Diary, it's sort of a funny story. The male critic wrote, based on footage of Renee Zellweger in a trailer for the new Bridget Jones movie, that her changed appearance interfered with his ability to reconnect with the character. He said she was never conventionally beautiful, but, but now you get the drift. He got pummeled, rightly, on social media. But the topic of actresses past age 30 who've had work done will not go away soon. We know plastic surgeons and dermatologists in Hollywood are royalty. We've seen their work, for good and ill. And I'd be lying if I said I'd never joked about it in print. Once I compared a youngish actress whose face looked so Botoxed she couldn't move her features to the Tin Woodsman in The Wizard of Oz. I regret that, though it was kind of funny. But I regret that. A doctor recently said he'd seen me on TV and I should get some of this fat sucked out from under my chin, and he gave me the name of a surgeon who could lift my saggy eyes. 
and I've been thinking about it a lot. And I'm just a commentator. I'm on TV four minutes every two or three weeks, and I'm a guy. Imagine a woman in an industry where producers are known to separate headshots into two piles, those they'd want to sleep with and those they wouldn't. Imagine that actress written about by internet commenters in terms so vile I can't repeat them, damned for gaining weight or merely aging. Now, there is a valid objection to getting work done. Actors often refer to their bodies as instruments, and the most important part of that instrument is, of course, the face, with which they can register the finest quivers of emotion. Plastic surgery involves cutting muscles. Fillers eliminate lines of expression, so they're actually hurting themselves as artists. But to shame actresses for having work done willy-nilly and not because they're up against brutal pressure from inside and outside their industry seems to me inhuman. It's not just a problem for Renee Zellweger, a wonderful actress. It's a problem for all women in a culture deformed by double standards. And it's a problem for men, me included, who can end up sounding like entitled creeps. Still to come. It's caused by heating and cooling of the earth. Talking science with Bill Nye. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Bill Nye, the science guy, has gone from changing the way kids look at science to trying to change the way adults deal with climate change. It's a campaign that begins close to home, as Rita Braver discovered. On a quiet residential street in water-starved Los Angeles sits Nye Labs. We have a drought, so we call this Xeriscape. Uh, it's a Greek word for dry. It's the home of Bill Nye, the science guy. I don't want to brag too much, but it's probably a 20th of the water. And here, everything is a science project, from the composter, to the solar panels, to the vegetable garden. Everybody eats kale, and it's great. And it just grows like crazy. Do you want some? It's good. There's nothing better really? for you. Oh. And inside... This is a periodic table that we used on television. And the Smithsonian wants this. This great is guy. a historic thing I'm looking yeah, at. Yeah, well, here, I huh? mean, if you're a science guy show fan. <laughs> Bill Nye, the science guy. And there are many. The 1990s show Bill Nye, the science guy, made him a star. Wind all over the world is caused by heating and cooling of the earth. All in the service of teaching kids science. Now that's a chemical reaction. We're going to run some electrons through it and make... The show it. ended in 1998. All right. I love you, man. <laughs> but 60-year-old Nye's work as a bow-tied science educator has not. If we were to find evidence of life on Mars, it would change the world. Only now, 
his focus is on adults. With, we don't agree on the facts. Well, the science, yeah, the researchers say yes. You not all the researchers. And again, hope. even the, I think globally you're increasing data. I think no, not not absolutely. I feel we have a real problem of anti-science right now. And if you have people uh, who are voters and taxpayers who don't believe in science, we're going to fall behind as a society. Hence his high-profile debate a while back defending the theory of evolution against attacks from creationists who believe the universe was created in six days. I believe it's the creationists that should be educating uh, the, the kids out there because we're teaching them the right way to think. Mr. Ham, how could there be billions of stars more distant than 6,000 years if the world's only 6,000 years old? But he is most passionate about the dangers of climate change, the subject of his latest book. Climate change is real. Let's keep in mind that there's something about which you should give a f Have you become politicized? Yeah, well, I, people look at me as a political figure. And is that sure. okay with you? Well, what's the alternative? I mean, if climate change is objectively an enormous problem. And if you think it's because I'm a progressive and you're a conservative, then that's you, you putting it on me. I really work to be open-minded, and genetically modified food is a classic example. Yes, he's done an about-face on these foods which he once opposed. And I was really impressed with how thorough agricultural testing is. It's really amazing. It's amazing. It changed my mind. You've kind of alienated some people who have been supporters and fans in the past. I'm doing my best here, people. I've looked at the data and I've changed my mind. What more do you need from me? That's science. So says the science guy. But it may surprise you to learn that he's actually William Sanford Nye, the mechanical engineer, a Cornell graduate rejected four times for the astronaut program. Nye joined Boeing in the 1980s, working on the 747. Then one day, he won a Steve Martin look-alike contest. My name is Bill. Am I moving too fast? My name is Bill. Which led to TV gigs doing his own brand of comedy. This looks like a job for... Speedwalker. And somehow it all led. So what is a wetland anyway? Well, to Bill Nye, the science guy. We got a major wetland here, okay? This is uh, a salt marsh and the tide flat. You see, I'm sort of sinking. Almost 30 years later, the science guy is no act. Technically, black holes are not vessels of pure energy. Nye's day job is CEO of the Planetary Society a space enthusiast organization set to launch the first ever solar-propelled spacecraft next year. But while Nye dreams of outer space, it's his own DNA that worries him. My family has an affliction called ataxia. <clears throat> my sister has it real bad. And what's the, what's the you symptom You walk of like it? you're drunk. And my oh. sister has a walker. That's how she goes everywhere. And it's not, apparently it's not a strength thing. It has to do with your balance, which comes from your cerebellum. But you don't have symptoms of this. You yeah, I do. Yeah, it's you just, do. it was two years ago I noticed it. So as, as somebody who sees things from a scientific point of view, is this a little bit scary for you? If you're not scared of this, 
I don't know what you're scared of. But one thing he thinks can stave it off is exercise, which is why you'll often find Bill Nye at this Elks Club swing dancing the night away. I have to say that the last place most people think Bill Nye the science guy would be is on a dance floor in an Elks Club. It's a blast. What do you love about it? Why, what brings you out here? The music. I like the music. And it's the joy of movement. You move your body, it feels great. And then you get to hold the woman, which is priceless. You're single. Do you have a significant other these days? Maybe. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you if you think, you know, the human species gets lonely. When yeah. Oh like gosh. No. So. So yes. I. I. Uh, I've had a lot of girlfriends, and uh, looking back, it would have been better to have get married and have kids, but I was doing this other thing. That's really nice. That's the Japanese silk. It has the. This other thing, Bill Nye says is summed up in a single line he wrote for the staffers of his old show. And do you see the objective in 1993? Change the world. And after all these years, your motto is still... Change the world. Heck yes. If you don't think you can, then what are you doing here? Come on, people. Let's make the world better than we found it. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.